105 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cardiac Organoids, with Dr. James Hudson. Hey everyone, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Okay, listeners, as mentioned last episode, the Stem Cell Podcast is heading to the 2019 ISSCR annual meeting in Los Angeles. In fact, by the time this episode airs, I'm probably going to be zipping through the air on an airplane headed to the meeting. Once I arrive, I'm going to be conducting interviews with conference attendees, and I want to speak with you. Drop by room 516 on Thursday between 1 and 3 p.m. and Friday between 2 and 4 p.m to answer some questions about ISSCR and your research, and you could appear on the podcast. And not only that, but anyone that answers one of our questions will be entered into a draw to win a pretty sweet prize. Again, that's room 516 on Thursday between 1 and 3, and on Friday between 2 and 4. We're looking forward to seeing you there, guys. Drop in on us. Getting back to today's episode... We have Dr. James Hudson from the QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute on the podcast to talk about his research on cardiac organoid development and heart disease therapeutics. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, do you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes? If you do... Maybe you should use stem cells, stem diff, cardiomyocyte media, and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional HPSC-derived cardiomyocytes from your cultures. Stem diff, cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells, and the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff-cardio. Now on to the roundup. You know, this time of year, I get a bit self-conscious, you know? The sun is out. I got to come out of my cave and meet the world again. I'm dreadful at it. But I get self-conscious because I know my hair's not getting any thicker. We all know that biological and psychologically, biologically because, you know, to keep you warm, but psychologically, hair is important. Uh, we all know that. And hair loss affects millions worldwide. And it can occur because of, you know, aging, I joke. But there's also, you know, clinical hair loss, hormonal dysfunction, autoimmunity, or as a side effect of cancer treatment. So, you know, it's something that we should be treating, but it's tough. Right, so let's get down to the basics. How does hair work? How does the growth cycle work? Well, there's cyclic repetitions of this telogen phase, which is quiescence, then antigen, which is the regeneration phase, and then catagen, which is degeneration, which is the problem. Catagen, hate you. Um, And, you know, inadequate hair follicle stem cell activation and proliferation underlies alopecia, in a lot of biological uh, and pathological conditions, you know, like I said, that the aging, but also all those other ones too, right? Um, so, you know, something we'd like to do something about. And Jin, Jin Huang at uh, UCLA, no coincidence, LA, cosmetically the hair there, it's very important. 
okay? Um, they seem to have figured it out. No bald people in L.A. last time I saw. But I'll see when I get over there. I'm going to be taking pictures, all right? So put your toupees on. Back to the story, you know, Jin Huang and his group, they postulate that telogen hair follicles, you know, the quiescent ones, may be induced to enter antigen by pharmacologically triggering autophagy. Remember the Nobel Prize winning autophagy and everyone was like, well, congratulations, sir, on the autophagy. I don't understand how that works clinically, but it does. It does a lot of stuff. Autophagy clearing of active, healthy mitochondria and hematopoietic stem cells required to maintain quiescence and stemness, right? We know that. Autophagy fulfills the nutrient demand of quiescent muscle stem cell activation. We know that. We know a lot of things. Autophagy, it's, it's, you need it to clear, to clear. In the skin, autophagy is required for self-renewal and differentiation of epidermal and dermal stem cells. We know that. But the role in hair follicle stem cells, it's remained a bit controversial. Okay, so Jing Huang and the group, they, uh, they figured on autophagy theoretically, but they must have known something. Jing Huang and a bunch of other people on a patent that was filed about four years ago, they must have known something because they also had found that there's like these metabolites that uh, can be used to stimulate, they patented them at least, so they thought they would, uh, that they could be used to stimulate quiescent hair follicles into antigen um, and hair growth by small molecules that activate autophagy, okay, including these metabolites, alpha-ketoglutarate, alpha-ketobutyrate, and these two prescription drugs that are out in the mix, I'm loath to even name them because people are going to race to the pharmacy straight off if they, they think they're losing a bit of hair. But rapamycin, metformin, if you're feeling a little self-conscious with the summer coming, maybe get out there. I don't advise to do that. But uh, yeah, I'll tell you, Jing Huang, they show in the group, they show stimulation of hair growth by these agents. It, it works. They, they can stimulate this entry um, into antigen and hair growth. And that is, is blocked if you use these autophagy inhibitors, okay? So it seems to be mechanistically linked to autophagy specifically. And oral alpha-ketobutyrate prevented hair loss in age mice. Wow. That could be big. L.A., going to be a lot of hairy people over there, like there weren't already. Next on, that was a cell report story. Another cell report story. This one, a resource from... Uh, Hans Willem Snook here in New York at Columbia University Med Center. Um, so organoids, we all know that organoids, 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 right? I'm, I'm going to talk about some organoids, I'm sure, on the show. It's inevitable um, because the guest, he specializes in organoids. But I'd ca cover them around up anyway because you have to say it. So here we go. Organoids. There's all different types. I don't have to name them. Hans Cleavers has about half of them. Um, in the lung, there's been some organoids made as well to look at genetic defects affecting, you know, specific lineages in the lung, like those affected in uh, cystic fibrosis and the surfa surfactant deficiencies. That was two big stories at a cotton lab. So he's kind of corner of the market on the, on the lung, but there's room. There's room. Snook's, Snook's coming in. 
Um, especially because, you know, that was this single unique cell type, relevant, very important clinically, but modeling of, of path, pathogenic processes that are more meta, you know, affect the lung structure and involve interactions between different cell types, you know, such as those occurring in, in a lot of diseases in the lung, specifically think of like, you know, interstitial lung disease. It's been challenging, right? Um, and those diseases are typically characterized by a fibrotic process, an obliteration of lung alveoli, and so there's a whole superstructure failure leads to respiratory failure, right? So in like, for instance, this idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, that's, that's the, the one there. It's the most lethal. And um, median survival, three to four years. Yearly mortality in the U.S. alone, 40,000, okay? And although there's some, like, early recent trials showing two drugs that may slow disease progression a bit, the only definitive treatment is lung transplant. You know, we all know there's a lot of challenges there in terms of availability, in terms of immune suppression, rejection, etc., so that's not really a great option, and if we had further insight into the kind of pathogenic mechanisms, maybe we could find some molecular targets so we could drug it, right? So let's go for it, Hans, Willem, you go for it. And they did. Uh, and I'll tell you how, because the, 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 although it's not well known, or the, the clear pathogenesis most... Uh, idiopathic, there you go, idiopathic, pulmonary fibrosis, of course, by definition, it's relatively unclear, the etiology, but there's at least 5% of cases that are inherited, right? And so, and the nature of the mutations in those inherited cases suggests that there's an injury to these type 2 alveolar epithelial cells, which are the cells that produce surfactant um, in the alveoli. Okay, so it suggests that this surfactant-producing cell is critical to the pathogenesis of disease. Okay, so cut to now, there's this other condition, um, Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome, okay, we'll call it HPS, in which there's a lot, another high incidence of, there's a lot of pulmonary fibrosis in these patients, right? So, and that also has a link to this surfactant deficiency, right? So... The it's kind of like a stand-in, all right? HPS is kind of a stand-in for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis because it recapitulates the syndrome, right? So Hans Willem Snook and their group, his group at uh, Columbia University Med Center, what they did is they generated a bunch of human pluripotent stem cell lines with mutations in some of these HPS genes, okay? And found that those cells, they they recapitulated that fibrotic feature. So they had a, a solid model, and they did genome-wide expression analysis and showed that in that, in, during that fibrosis, there was a significant upregulation of interleukin-11. And in, in the uh, epithelial cells from these mutant, these HPS mutant fibrotic organoids, Right, and then of course they went to the next experimental step. Showed that if you added IL-11 to wild-type organoids, it induced fibrosis. Boom. And if you deleted uh, IL-11 from the HPS mutant organoids, 
prevented fibrosis. So all the pieces in place to support this IL-11 as a therapeutic target for maybe preventing or mitigating. You know, they have this pharma approach. Maybe you could use an antibody-based approach, which is, you know, that's kind of what we're doing for a lot of diseases nowadays. So complementary to the pharmacologic antibody. It's a big deal. 40,000 people dying a year, three to four years. So if you could extend that, cut that mortality in half, give people a few more good years. I mean, there's nothing more uh, than just the notion of, of, you know, your last breath. Struggling to breathe, it's really, ugh, what a tough way to spend the final moments. Um, moving out of cell reports, but staying within the cell press journals, we're going to talk to you about a cell stem cell paper. When I was listening to uh, Tanish Dorea in last episode tell me about her role model and mentor, Irv Weiss, when I said, I wonder what Irv's doing. So I went to, I searched Irv Weissman. Of course, I found that he came out with a paper three minutes before I'd searched. And it was this one. So it's a little old by the time you hear in the episode, but I think this is really relevant to, to the whole field, right? It's about conditioning, okay? So we all know about hematopoietic cell transplant. It, it's used very commonly to treat malignancy, you know, hemato hematological malignancy of cancer, really. But there's also other kind of hematological issues, uh, disorders like beta thalassemia, sickle cell, and, of course, you know, immunodeficiencies, autoimmune diseases. All of these things can be treated uh, with hematopoietic cell transplantation. It's like the gold standard of cell therapy. It just works for a lot of things. But not a lot of people talk about the other potential of hematopoietic cell transplantation, which is in inducing immunologic tolerance. Okay? So if I seed my immune system with the hematopoietic cells of a donor organ that match a donor organ, then, then when I get that organ, I won't reject it. I'll be kind of conditioned, okay? It'll facilitate the transplantation of immunologically mismatched or imperfect match organs without the need for lifelong immune suppression. People misunderstand, I think, the implications. You survive, you get a, a transplant, it's like, yeah, you made it, but I mean, that's a lifetime of medication, not to mention there's a lot of, you know, malignancy that emerges just from the whole, the whole rigmarole, right? Not to mention the infection potential of living your life with a suppressed immune system. So, yeah, you know, hematopoietic cell transplantation for the purpose of conditioning, it would seem like, wow, no-brainer, but it's tough. It's tough because... The bottom line is when you're doing this, it's, there's a, it's a high-risk thing, you know, and the only real reason to justify that high risk because you have to undergo these toxic regimens of chemo, radiotherapy, or, you know, this clearing, right? And the only thing that, that, that justifies chemo or radiation-associated risks is if, like, you're going to die anyway. So it's not common that you'll do this hematopoietic cell transplantation for the purpose of conditioning. Right? Because it's so toxic. But that sounds like a problem that Irv would like to wrap his arms around. So, of course, Irv's from Stanford. So his group there 
Uh, they devised a strategy for engrafting MHC mismatched hematopoietic stem cells without the use of chemo and radiation. And the way they did it was using antibody-based conditioning, okay? And found that it had reduced toxicity, uh, enhanced specificity. And they had kind of pioneered this earlier in, in print, and like the, the, but this has kind of refined it and, and took it to the, to the whole endpoint, which is why it's in the cell stem cell. They used six monoclonal antibodies that targeted CD47, uh, T cells, natural killer cells, and hematopoietic stem cells, followed by the donor hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And when they conditioned in this way, it allowed tolerance to heart tissue uh, from the donor strain. So like actual organ tissue. Uh, and that really, I think, shows in a very clear and, and definitive, uh, I mean, semi-definitive, not a whole organ transplant heart tissue, but yeah, still pretty strong uh, demonstration that this has a lot of potential application for solid organ transplantation without having to worry about that lifelong immune suppression. So yeah, let's see what Irv does tomorrow. If so, you're going to have to wait till the next show to hear about it. And it'll be old news by then. Sorry, Irv. Moving on into España. This is a story that I think is relevant because we're talking about transplantation, right? Uh, and this is not exactly a stem cell story. I want to get out front with that, but I think it has a lot of implications for stem cells. So listen up. Um, the, the, I think, you know, the, the main problem, well, not the main, but a major problem with generally with transplantation, but in particular uh, transplantation with uh, of pancreatic islets, right? So, you know, they have cadaveric or, you know, cadaveric uh, pancreatic islets that get transplanted for treatment of, of uh, diabetes. Um, but the problem with them is you get incomplete graft revascularization because they're very rich. They have a very rich blood supply. It's super vascular. And you sever that, and then you just jam them back in and hope for them to really, you know, there's going to be a, a latency while they, those vessels re-anastomose and get revascularized and hooked up to the host uh, capillary bed there, right? So it's, there's a lot of loss of the tissue there contributes to, uh, oftentimes to primary failure of the transplanted islets, right? All right, so you're going to have to stay with me here because it's daisy chain of events, right? There's a lot of a lot that goes on along with revascularizing tissue, right? And there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot we know. But one of the, I think everyone would agree on the major factor, secreted factor that mediates this process: vascular endothelial growth factor A. Trust me, okay? It's key, critical angiogenic molecule in many contexts. Stimulates blood vessel formation, right? Okay. So in endothelial cells. The tyrosine phosphorylation of both the VEGF receptor, okay, VEGF A receptor, which is VEGF R2, as well as the vascular endothelial cadherin molecule, which is an endothelial specific cadherin that's integral to EC identity. But they also, both of those molecules are involved in signaling and tyrosine phosphorylation of those two molecules. It's an important uh, factor, it's a facet uh, that whereby VEGF 
stimulates via that. It's how VEGF stimulates angiogenesis and vasculogenesis, okay? So next, there's this protein, tyrosine phosphatase 1B, okay? Let's call it PTP1B. That, it regulates phosphotyrosine signaling in a lot of ways, in a lot of contexts, but it, it's been shown specifically to inhibit phosphorylation of both VEGF R2 and VEK adherin, okay? Thus negatively affecting these processes. And so, long story short, PTP1B, no good for VEGF, okay? So, Rosagasa and Ramon Gomis from Barcelona. Poor accent. I've been there, though, and I loved it. It's a beautiful place. They have some heart disease there, I'm not surprised, because, you know, a little bit of Western, but it's very fatty, very rich, those tapas. But delicious. I could live on it. Anyway, Rosa and Ramon, who are from uh, Barcelona, like I said, they get they said logically they said, okay, if we can target PTP1B and and kind of mitigate the activity of that, then maybe we'll boost VEGF, right? PTP1B, no good VEGF. Shut down PTP1B, yay VEGF, right? So they show that in grass and mouse first. They show that in graphs of pancreatic islets that were PTP1B null, they had increased revascularization, improved graft survival and function, recovery of normal glycemia and glucose tolerance in diabetic mice, right? So that's a win. And then they show that those observations were reproduced in human islets when they targeted PTP1B. Okay, so it, I mean, it's a pretty simple story, but it's very, very translational. It's science translational medicine shows that PTP1B, you know, via VEGF, it's ne by negative effect on VEGF. So if you target it, you can improve islet transplantation outcomes, all right? This shows inhuman islets in the context of transplantation. So if we could find a safe way to target PTP1B in human transplant tissue, like, yeah, put it in the clinic tomorrow. But the reason why I'm talking about it on the show today is because... You know, maybe this is something that you could target. Is it have, does it work in a more generalized function in, in the context of transplant? You know, we like to transplant PSC-derived tissues, too. So you might see a lot of people going after this PTP1B to improve revascularization of XYZ in the next, uh, in the next few months and years. Okay, and, uh, you know, we're going to finish up talking about the heart because it's what we like to do if we can. We have a guest who specializes in the heart and organoids, and we're going to hear plenty about that. But, you know, we also have to do some single-cell stuff on the show, so we're going to do that now. Um, this is money, though, I'll tell you. Cell stem cell, it's a resource. It's about uh, reprogramming, and I'm sure we'll talk with this with uh, James, talk about this with James. Um, it's, it's one way, you know. People talk about transplanting... ES-derived, PSC-derived cell, IPSC-derived heart tissue, uh, or, you know, we've talked about targeting mirrors at mirror 199A. We talked about it in the Roundup and the pigs, and where they did that, and it worked for a little bit. Um, but there's this other way you can affect a change in the heart, is that by direct reprogramming, right? So you have a myocardial infarct, it all becomes these myofibroblast scar, dead junk, right? So 
What if instead of becoming that, you just said, hey, become this, directly reprogram the stuff. And it's been like, it has more, more surprisingly effective, I, I would say. Um, and, you know, because I'm very cynical, which means very effective. But um, that efficacy has been, I think, mainly demonstrated in the context of mouse, obviously, because you need like a physiological setting. No one's going to be shooting this into any human hearts, I hope. But human-induced cardiomyocyte reprogramming, it's still a challenge. It remains a challenge because uh, you need like more complex cocktails. It's lower, lower efficiency. It takes longer. And these differences, like most things, when you try to scale up from the mouse to the human, difficulties likely stem from species differences, right? And the gene regulatory networks that control cardiomyocyte fate. But not just cardiomyocyte fate inducing it, but also like how ready these fibroblasts are to give up being fibroblasts. And I feel like the, the mouse is a very promiscuous as far as the cells go. They just give up their identity very readily. Very impressionable with silly mice. Um, but maybe the humans not so much. So if, 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 there's, if there's differences, right? And understanding these differences in the human mouse gene, uh, gene regulatory networks, it's a, it's a critical next step if we're ever going to be shooting this stuff in the human hearts, which seems, right now, it seems not really practical knowing what we know. Um, so Lee Kian, who at U, who's at UNC Chapel Hill, they uh, address this using this brute force, single cell, seek approach. Of course, looking at the uh, cells during reprogramming, okay? And then they, uh, they also use other, like more technological and programming, bioinformatic approaches like this RNA velocity, which was previously published, and also this slicer-based trajectory reconstruction, also previously published, very cool sounding, to identify this bifurcation event uh, that like was the hinge point between acquisition of cardiomyocyte fate or regression towards fibroblast fate and they called this this a decision point right so they that they were able to identify that cell like when they were right at that point um, and then in combination with like functional screening they showed also that there's, to you know, build on that, they showed that there's this immune response-associated DNA methylation that's integral to the cardiomyocyte choice, right? So choosing cardiomyocytes, and that also silencing of a previously, uh, there's all these, you know, it's been characterized, uh, targets of uh, MIR-133, but identify that it's silencing previously uncharacterized targets could replace the this indispensable function of MIR-133 for getting a cardiomyocyte induction. So finding alternative paths. And they also, lastly, of course, developed this, because it's not enough, uh, they developed this cell fate index algorithm to kind of get the timing, to get an idea about uh, like the pace, and showed, indeed, that uh, there was a slower progression in the human towards cardiomyocyte reprogramming. So all in all, the story, it provides a lot of technical, an array of technical tools. That's why it's cell stem cell resource that also delineates the gene networks that underline cardiomyocyte reprogramming in the human at much higher resolution, which gives a lot of targets for people to look at 
and they're trying to make this, you know, uh, clinically viable and translate it. All right, so there we go at UNC. Lee Kian killing it, building on the heart. Just in time, because we there weren't many heart stories in literature this week, and yeah, we always like to have a nice segue. But before we get to James, did you know that you can model arrhythmias in cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? If you didn't, I mean, you can. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited HPSC lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. If you want to do that, and you should, visit www.stemcell.com slash cardio-webinar. All right, guys, today I have for you Dr. James Hudson, who's group leader at the Organoid Research Laboratory at QIMR Berghofer Medical Research Institute. Dr. Hudson's lab is focused on developing state-of-the-art bioengineering approaches for 3D human organoids, ultimately aiming to use them for discovery of new therapeutics for human disease. Dr. Hudson, thanks for joining us today on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, well, it's our pleasure to uh, invite and have you. Uh, why don't you start by giving us a brief kind of overview of what your research is over there in the Berghofer Medical Research Institute. Yeah, in our lab, we um, use a whole bunch of different engineering technologies uh, combined with cell culture to try and make um, more representative models of uh, cell culture for a whole bunch of different applications. Um, I mean, the, the applications sort of range from using those cells to screen for new drugs or do basic fundamental biological studies um, and also using those as patches to deliver into the body. Uh, the primary focus of our lab is mainly the cardiac and heart organoids, um, but we've also developed other uh, tissue systems such as skeletal muscle. Um, we've done a little bit of neural work as well. Um, and now we're working with some cancer labs too. So we, we cover most uh, different areas. Uh, and it's sort of because my background is in both engineering and biology um, during my ad undergraduate degrees. Right. So I can tell from the accent also that you're, uh, you know, you have Australian origins. Uh, what's the deal with heart disease in uh, Australia? What goes on there? What's the scope of disease? Yeah, like most Western countries, um, Australia the leading cause of death in Australia is heart disease, um, just as it is in the US or uh, other developed countries in Europe. And so it's also a big focus of research here in Australia. Yeah, and so, you know, the one of your studies I know is focused on heart generation in the adult, and that's, you know, minimal. That's the real problem, right, is that you can't get these hearts to regenerate like many other organs. Um, but postnatally, you know, in the last 10 years or so, they found that postnatally there's a lot of active heart regeneration. One of your stories a couple of years ago was focused on this. Can you can I elaborate on that and, and can I draw the distinction between what it is in the postnatal and the adult heart that dictates that, you know, that loss of the ability as, as we grow? Yeah, so a, whole, a lot of research over the last 10 to 15 years 
has focused on trying to regenerate different organs, different body parts, that sort of thing. A lot of that research was originally done in um, lower vertebrates, salamanders, zebrafish, those sort of model organisms. And uh, they found a remarkable regenerative potential in, in those different model systems. And so a lot of people were looking at um, the processes that regulate regeneration in those systems. Um, but more recently, Enzo Perello, when he was in Eric Olson's lab in the US, discovered that uh, during the postnatal window of development, that's where mammals lose their regenerative potential. And so that sort of meant that this regeneration process didn't just happen in uh, different organisms where somehow they were capable of regenerating multiple body parts. It meant that this process was a de developmental change that happens in our hearts where we lose that uh, regenerative potential. And so since then, my lab has really focused on trying to decipher the um, different molecular mechanisms governing cardiac maturation. Uh, so our cardiac organoids, uh, you know, immature um, if you compare them to the adult heart. And so a lot of work that my lab's been doing over the past six or seven years is to try and figure out exactly what matures the heart, uh, not only so we can make better, more functional tissues, but also so we can try and unlock the dormant regenerative um, potential of the heart tissue. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's exciting, the potential. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been caught up in this idea of uh, regenerating the adult or, or a nascent um, or quiescent stem cell that's in the adult heart. And I know famously, because, you know, the, the, it's been thought for many, the dogma was that there was no turnover in the heart. And then famously, the Karolinska studies showed that there was a low le level of turnover. And then caught up in that, mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of momentum. And um, I think infamously now, uh, Piero Anversa showed these C-kit positive cardiac progenitor cells, putative, and got a lot of money out of it, a lot of papers, and now Harvard and Brigham Young are calling for retraction of 31 papers that stem yeah. from this kind of now dubious, I think blatantly fraudulent, I think at this point we've shown, not that the CPCs don't exist, but the, the work that was done there was a, a bit off. Um, so it's, it's been tumultuous, uh, to say the least, in, in the adult heart. What's next for the endogenous, you know, putative progenitor stem cell in the heart? Is, there, is, there, is the potential still there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, even after Jeff Malkinton did the classic lineage tracing experiment and published that in Nature in 2014 and sort of showed that those C-kit cells couldn't really become cardiomyocytes. There's also been a whole bunch of other studies that have been published um, showing that SCAR1 cells can't form any cardiomyocytes. And then um, I think there was co-publication of about six papers in circulation showing that, um, you know, basically there is no cardiovascular um, progenitor that can give rise to cardiomyocytes in the adult heart. So I think that area of research is, uh, you know, on its way out. Uh, I think it's set back the field a, a fair bit trying to deal with all this. 
I think, um, you know, some of the technologies such as reprogramming of fibroblasts and those sort of cells um, could be potentially possible and, and different work um, from different labs around the world has shown that. Um, the, then we've also got implantation of stem cell, or, and in this case, pluripotent stem cell derived patches, um, and then endogenous regeneration. And, you know, it's sort of hard to know which one will work in the end and i think we need to pursue all those different avenues um until we know which one will work most effectively yeah you kind of mentioned right there one path is the pluripotent stem cells and you've you know allocated much of your research effort to that end um and you've combined <laughs> your engineering acumen with the cardiac organoids to create this kind of screening pla platform to provide insight into the molecular mechanisms of cardiogenesis um, tell us about that. Expand upon that. I mean, you had the story in PNAS. You had the story in Cell Stem Cell that was based on this. Can you kind of give us a, a little bit more detail on how you're using this system? Yeah, sure. Uh, where I did my postdoctoral research um, over in Germany with Professor, um, Professor Wolfram Zimmerman, we really started developing um, technologies to create human um, heart tissue from pluripotent stem cells and since returning to Australia uh, we wanted to see how mature those tissues were in terms of cell cycle. Uh, a lot of work had been done um, in when I was in Germany on this um, in terms of a lot of functional properties and structural properties but not, not so much on uh, sort of their regenerative potential and how mature they were in terms of that. We published a paper in 2017 in development showing that even when you make these engineered tissues, um, they still do possess cell cycle activity and can recover from an injury. And so we knew that they weren't fully mature and we wanted to try and figure out what processes would drive their maturation and not only to make better tissues, but also so we could uncover the signaling and things going on during that window. Um, we published a paper, um, Greg Quaife Ryan in our lab, um, in circulation in 2017, where we actually profiled the mouse heart during postnatal development and all the different cell populations within that heart. And in that study, we found a profound reduction in cell cycle in the cardiomyocytes, but also, you know, a huge upregulation of metabolic processes um, to the point where you could almost call an adult cardiomyocyte a different cell type to a early neonatal cardiomyocyte. And so from those findings, we imposed different metabolic conditions to our organoids, and that was in our PNAS paper. And um, we found metabolic conditions that could promote their cell cycle arrest and promote their maturation. Now, it's Im important to note in that study that, you know, we saw quite profound structural and functional maturation by just having the 3D environment. And this was sort of uh, further maturation on top of that of certain processes. So we think that different um, maturation processes are potentially dictated by different stimuli. Hmm. Um, yeah, then, then more recently, um, we teamed up with AstraZeneca and uh, did a drug screen in our mature tissues to try and identify compounds that could activate endogenous regeneration of cardiomyocytes in a more mature cardiomyocyte system. And in that study, we really narrowed down um, from about a thousand hits that they had in 2D, we took the top 100 hits 
and in our system we were able to narrow that down to only two compounds that could induce proliferation without any huge functional effect. So we think that that's a good system to try and um, decipher the signaling going on um, to try and drive regeneration, but we've still got a lot more work to do to try and figure out exactly what's going on. So you, you mentioned they teamed up with AstraZeneca. You know, I'm assuming that's because they have an interest in applying this clinically. How do you leverage this, this kind of finding clinically, or what's their, their end point? Um, yours may be just more basic or knowledge and trying to figure out the system, but, mm-hmm. but what, what are they looking towards with this? Are they looking for a drug for heart regeneration? Yeah, I I think it's probably not appropriate for me to comment too much on what they're looking for. (laughs) Theoretically, I mean, of course. I just mean when any pharma interest, or forget about AstraZeneca, but how do you leverage this type of finding clinically? Is it, I mean, is it more of understanding the, the effect of you know, other drugs that you're working on in a, in a system that is more akin to the adult, mature human heart? Or are we actually talking about drugging heart disease? Yeah, so I think the, the, end, game, the end game for, let's just say, industry would be to have potentially a compound that you could give to someone that causes their heart to repair itself. That's, that would be the holy grail. I mean, there's issues where you know, potentially you're activating a cell cycle program and you could cause tumor genesis or cancer formation under those conditions. But one thing that was quite interesting in our study is that the top compounds that we had in the end, they specifically activate cell cycle in the cardiomyocytes, not in the fibroblasts. So there's um, some sort of heart-specific regulation of cell cycle that's happening we don't fully comprehend that yet, um, and you know there's more work to be done. But there is perhaps a potential where you could give someone a systemic drug, and it specifically activates heart regeneration. And you know people people wouldn't have to be on this drug chronically for years and years. It, it would be sort of a a few week um, period where they would be on this drug. Um, so even if it does cause some proliferation off-site, it's potentially not the worst thing. Um, but, yeah, let's see what happens. So in uh, a few weeks ago now, there was this paper that you may have seen it with the microRNAs uh, in pig mm-hmm. heart. Did you see that? And, I mean, it was notable yeah. because, you know, it was a dramatic effect until the heart, like, you know, exploded, right? So what what mm-hmm. is... Uh, like the these alternate paths how is that you know how does that relate to a pharmacological approach do you think that ultimately it's it's more or less practical more or less robust mm-hmm. yeah i think i think in that study um that was published on the microRNA, um specifically 199a they showed that you know, you, you got quite a robust proliferation effect in the cardiomyocytes and then um, in came this explosion of proliferation. It's very interesting in that study because the proliferating cells that really took over um, were negative for that microRNA. So there was some sort of paracrine effect going on with mm. these progenitor cells in those pig hearts. I mean, it's very difficult to fully understand the detailed mechanisms of what's going on in a pig. Um, it's a a lower throughput, more costly model. But 
It was a very interesting finding, and it and it does raise concerns if you chronically activate some of these pathways. Uh, but that you know that was driven by um, activation over a very long period of time, and I think any therapies we have that move to the clinic are going to have to be um, a shorter term uh, modulation of a pathway. So, for example different compound drugs or, you know, antibodies or there could be a range of different modalities used to try and only have a transient effect on the heart. So, yeah, this, I mean, in light of you saying that you're going to have to have this transient effect, uh, and I, th I would argue that maybe the, the, the whole thing, the whole, uh, a lot of the energy um, uh, behind embryonic stem cell research period was based in, you know, what, what you study, what I also incidentally study, heart disease, and, and it, because it's such a major killer, right? So, like, a lot of the momentum, a lot of the rationale for regenerative therapy is based on, obviously, the fact that this is the one disease that we just can't crack any other way. Um, but all that enthusiasm mm -hmm. was based on like cell-based regenerative approaches. And I think, you know, what we've learned a lot about the limitations of those approaches. But I think there's still a lot of people that would argue that it's still viable. Where do you come down on, you know, having just stated that a transient effect is really... And I would agree that the cell-based cell approach has major limitations vis-a-vis -vis that lack of transience. Um, wh where do you, do you think that, that there's a future for cell-based regenerative approaches in the heart? Yeah, de definitely. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a different situation with the cell-based therapies. Um, for the endogenous regeneration, you're just activating proliferation of the heart cells. So if you do some calculations, I mean, you only need a quarter of the heart cells to divide once to replace the number lost in, for example, a myocardial infarction. Um, so you, you can get away with a transient response. I think cellular therapies where you're delivering cells, those cells need to survive and engraft long term. So it's a very different situation. And I think, I think there's a huge space in that area. And... Um, you know, even pharma is now getting more into that where previously they hadn't. And even our lab has um, some programs in that area to try and produce optimal patches to deliver to the heart as well, um, to try and overcome some of the issues with the arrhythmias and also retention of the cells. So I have to ask, because you're an engineer what about the artificial heart? Whatever happened to the artificial heart? It's one of those things, you know, like the iPad, where they come out with the, you know, the Newton or whatever that was, and everyone's like, oh, it's junk. And it's just, or the foldable phone is like the current iteration, you know? And it's just not ready for prime time. And, you know, 10 years down the line, everyone's like, hey, whatever happened to that? And then it's ready. Is the artificial heart, I feel like we keep coming back to it, forgetting, coming back. Is it something that's, that's you know, are we going to come back around to that, you think? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't really know what the reason was why it failed. Um, perhaps other people know a lot more about it than I do. But obviously there's a lot of issues with having a non-biological system. I mean, you know, metal surfaces, especially in a really high-pressure, high kinetic environment such as the heart it's easy to have blood clots and things like that mm. in, in a system like that also having an impeller creating a lot of shear 
Um, that being said, you know, the LVAD device area has been quite successful and is, you know, currently used pretty widely in the clinic. So, you know, and the other thing is a lot of patients that have heart failure that go on those LVADs can actually recover some of their heart function um, later on too. So, you know, sort of supporting the heart with something like an LVAD is probably not that dissimilar to implanting a patch onto someone's heart. So there's definitely uh, space in that area. But, yeah, I don't I don't know what happened to the, the full heart transplantation <laughs> with a mechanical device well, sort of stuff. We'll see it, I'm sure, in a few years. Someone will remind us about <laughs> yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, I'd be paying short shrift to your the broad scope of your research to not talk about the other kind of things. You know, as an engineer, you, you kind of have developed an approach and you're applying it, you know, not just in the heart space. What, can you tell us a bit about, you know, the skeletal muscle? I know you just had a paper about that and, and you alluded to neural that you're working on, too. How do you uh, appropriate the uh, technology you developed for this heart and toward those other ends? Skeletal muscle, I guess, is pretty easy to envision, but neural, maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the postdoc in my lab, Richard Mills, his, a lot of his background was in skeletal muscle, so probably wouldn't have really gone into that area without him. So, you know, it's sort of... It's sort of having that expertise in the different organ systems is critical because it, it's the people in those fields that understand the, the key questions in those fields. And so with a lot of those um, different uh, projects that we have on the other organoid systems, uh, that's ten, that tends to be driven by um, other people in our lab or collaborators that have that expertise. Um, for example, at QIMR, um, we've got a researcher upstairs, Brian Day, who's working on brain cancer cells, and we're trying to develop multicellular um, tissues with him to try and recapitulate the tumour environment. Um, but, you know, that's, he's getting actual patient biopsies from the brain um, and where we can get the cells and, and start to do those experiments. So that's the way it's sort of been operating in our lab. Uh, the neural stuff... Um, you know, that's also in part driven because the skeletal muscle, uh, it doesn't contract by itself like our heart um, organoids do, where they have some pacemaker cells in them. And so, you know, there to stimulate the contraction, we need something to help us. And in our paper that we published um, just this year, we did that through inserting channel rhodopsin and then pacing them with mm -hmm. uh, LED lights. And so that's one way to do it, but we'd like to do that in a more physiologically relevant <laughs> way by incorpor incorporating motor neurons. <laughs> well, that would be, I mean, that's a pretty cool way to do it. I, I mean, I would be okay if my muscles fired with light. It'd be probably easier <laughs> than my will forcing that. Um, the, you, you talk about organoids, of course. We're, we're all talking about organoids. We're wild for organoids these days. And I feel like, you know, the, the field has been saturated and mm -hmm. I think you kind of alluded to it in your answer there. You're looking at different cell systems and trying to recapitulate multicellular systems where in the, you know, having the neuromuscular junction or whatever, you got to get the synapse in, into mm -hmm. your skeletal muscle. So I feel like because, you know, we've seen a lot of organoids in the literature and I think the next phase is some other kind of compound organoid or, you know, maybe moving toward, I don't know. You tell me, what's the, what are we moving towards here? Are we going to try and get like 
not necessarily organs, but is that the next thing to get? Is this these more complex organoids that are comprised of many different cell types? Yeah, I think, um, you know, especially communication between the different organo- organs is a big um, issue. Um, I know, I'm aware of different programs around the world where they've actually tried to do these sort of things, like the body on a chip approach where you maybe have the different cell types in different chambers and the flow around can try and recapitulate the circulation and the communication between those. Um, in our lab, we've done a little bit of work on the communication between the skeletal muscle and the heart. Obviously, exercise is one of the most beneficial things um, for your heart. And we're actually finding that it seems to be that there's a bunch of factors in the skeletal muscle, um, the serum, or sorry, the media that's, and the factors that are secreted by the skeletal muscle when it's exercised in our optogenetic pacing are actually quite beneficial for the cardiac tissues. So I think we're going to see more of that happening because, you know, we, we can exquisitely control that in vitro. Um, and in vivo, it's very, very difficult to narrow down the precise interactions between the organs. Um, I think the organoid systems will never replace an in vivo model where, you know, it's a very complex environment where you have a lot of interactions going on. But I think using both at the same time really helps you to um, decipher these different processes that are very difficult to decipher in vivo in a mouse where it's extremely complicated. So I have to ask, you know, I feel like engineers, I don't, I don't know if they come down on the side of that because you seem to really, you know, respect the system, the physiological system and how complex it is. But I know a lot of engineers who think that any machine can be, you know, reverse engineered um is there uh, do you think we can get to the stage where we can make whole organs i mean the heart is super complex but even something a little bit more simple Mm -hmm. i think um one day we could get close and i mean uh there was the paper in 2008 published where they decellarized the heart and reseeded it with cardiomyocytes and endothelial cells and things like that and they could get some of the, um, I think it was 8 to 10% of the function of the actual heart, So, which is pretty good. Um, there's also been some liver studies, but to fully recapitulate an entire human organ, which is, you know, much, much bigger, I think that's going to be quite difficult. Um, one thing that, you know, people always, <laughs> people always think about, but maybe don't think about enough, is that, it's fine if we perfuse some of these artificial organs and we even develop some capillary networks, et cetera. But, you know, we don't actually have the hemoglobin and the red blood cells and things that our body has. And they're what retain a lot of the um, oxygen. And actually the body made red blood cells to stop the viscosity of the blood going through the roof by just having um, hemoglobin um, flowing around. So, I think we're a very long way off that because all of these things haven't even been touched on yet um, to make a large organ. And so you're going to have to have a pretty much a full blood supply if you want to do that. And and I'm I'm aware of people making very nice vascular networks and things, but progressing that to a full organ where you're going to have to have enough oxygen saturation is going to be very difficult. All right. All right. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think... Uh... 
I respect your lack of hubris there. And, uh, <laughs> um, but I think on a more, uh, I think, tractable problem, uh, we can kind of, towards the end of the interview here, you know, clinically I think we can make progress, but there's this, this anti-progress, you know, with the rising tide of the obesity and the, the, just the, the screens and whatnot leading to sedentary lifestyle and our natural environments in steep decline. So there's all these, you know, are threats to heart health, mm -hmm. really, like the, very specifically to heart health. Can these negative influences, you think, be outpaced by the medical, scientific, and engineering innovations that are, you know, happening today and in the future? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's hard to change someone's will and lifestyle when they're ingrained with that, I guess. I mean, I'm not a clinician, so I don't see the patients and I don't see what drives their choices. Um, so it's diff more difficult for me to comment on that. Um, but a good example would be here in Australia where, you know, the government's brought in different laws to try and stop smoking in pubs and clubs and in public spaces and things like that. And that's really led to a huge reduction in the number of Australians that smoke and it's been quite effective. So, you know, different policies like that can make a big difference. Um, whether that's technology driven or not in the future, um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's going to probably have to require some sort of regulation. I mean, in the UK, they were discussing a sugar tax and things like that. Whether or not that's the best thing to do or not, I mean, I don't know. I haven't considered all the variables, but, you know, these different things could help us start going in that direction. And there's a lot of, um, you know, a bit of a fitness craze here in Australia where there's a lot of people running, going to the gym, doing different sports. So, you know, I think in... 30 years' time, it might not be as bad as what we think it's going to be. Okay. So the socio-political landscape, and add to that your engineering and the 10 or 15 nature papers you publish in the next 20 years, that that, that should do the <laughs> I'll, trick. I'll be happy with one. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, man. That, that's uh, great. We're going to move on now to the kind of science peripheral um, uh, portion of the interview. And I just wanted to start with a nod to your influences. We have one fill in the blank for you, which is, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. Yeah, I think it's without the non-scientific part of my work. So still going surfing and outdoors and, and relaxing. Um, I think sometimes in the lab, if you're there all the time every day uh, doing the grind, you can lose a bit of perspective and so I think it's quite good to take a step back every now and then and you know reprogram yourself into considering exactly what you're doing and I think that's something that is happening less and less with the funding schemes getting tighter and tighter I don't know what it's like over there but in Australia it's getting tighter and tighter and people are working more and more and you know that's not always more productive so that perspective I think has really helped me. I mean, I'm glad to hear that because some of your level of accomplishment, if you go out and catch some waves every now and again, that makes me feel like I can go out and have a good time too. Guys, postdocs, <laughs> take a lesson, all right? It's not all about in the lab. You can find inspiration in the surf. All right, James, next question. Uh, 
What was your greatest science blunder? Well, I think we touched on that a bit earlier. Um, I was doing my PhD at the time when C-kit cells and all these different cardiac stem cell populations were quite a big thing. And I spent, you know, two or three years trying to turn MSCs and different other stem cell, putative stem cell populations into cardiomyocytes and nothing worked. So that was... um, you know, quite disappointing and quite a hard slog during those years. Gosh, I wonder how many people suffered through that same path just because it just really drives home how destructive and corrosive, you know, a very visible um, fraud can be. Uh, But we can't end on that. Tell me, what was your greatest uh, aha moment, so to speak? Well, that that was when I stopped um, trying to use those stem cells. And, you know, this was back in, um, you know, 2008, 2009, where pluripotent stem cells were becoming more and more um, used across the literature, but still, you know, differentiation um, protocols weren't very developed at that stage. And it was it was difficult to make different cell types that you wanted to. And so me and another guy in the lab, Drew Titmarsh, um, spent a lot of time trying to optimize protocols to make cardiomyocytes. And I remember the first time um, he saw them beating, I wasn't there because it was his turn to go in on the weekend and feed the cells. Um, he called me up and he's like, yeah, they're finally beating and they'll, you know, they're beating in nice sheets and everything. And ever since then, I've never looked back. I mean, pluripotent stem cells, we make 50 million, 100 million cells a week from them now in the lab. So, you know, that that is true cardiomyocyte differentiation when you see it. Yeah, undeniable when you see the the beating of in the dish. I mean, it's the, be- the best proof you can get, right? So cool, man. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. This was inspiring, educational, informative, and a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation and the discussion. All right, that was a lovely talk with uh, my man, Dr. James Hudson. I love talking to Australian people because they, they, uh, they have a lovely accent, frankly. But also, they're straight to the point, you know, and they, they uh, don't dally to borrow. I don't know if that's an Australian term. I don't usually hear it in the U.S. I'm sure there's a few dallies floating around in the lexicon over there. So, yeah, it was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, we got saturated with information about the heart, which we all care about. It's a big deal, a big unmet need, but not for long the way James is working. That brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. If you're on your way to the ISSCR right now listening to this show, you got to look me up because I'm on my way there too. This has been the Stem Cell Podcast. We will see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>